I, I have to tell you, while we were meditating, I always pay attention to our feet when we go through our feet. And I remember my grand, I have, I have big feet, and I have big feet when I was a kid. And my grandfather used to say, well, you just have a firm foundation and a good understanding. <laughs> and it took me years to understand what he was talking about, what he was saying. But it was, I guess it was his way of telling everybody else to quit teasing me about my big feet. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk some more tonight about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And just uh, to let everybody know, if you look on the table with the tablecloth in the little, between those two armchairs, I've got some sheets that are different versions of the Eightfold Path not the Eightfold Path, but the Dhamma Wheel. So take one when you go home. There are different ways that it can be drawn, and the Dhamma Wheel is a really helpful teaching tool in Buddhism. So you see that Dhamma Wheel everywhere because it represents uh, it represents a lot of things. So it always represents the Eightfold Path because there are four uh, cuts in the, in the wheel, and uh, the Eightfold Path, you can make, draw it pretty comfortably in the, in the spokes of the wheel. And the Dhamma wheel also is a symbol for Buddhism. When the Buddha um, first began his journey, he, he, it was predicted he would, be, he would either be a wheel-turning monarch. That was one of the things that the, the wise man predicted. He would either be... Or he, or he might be not just a wheel-turning king, but a wheel-turning uh, uh, sage, a wheel-turning, uh, well, the word Buddha wasn't used. but So back in the, the age of the Buddha, a wheel-turning king or a wheel-turning monarch meant someone who really was uh, very, very successful and powerful. Like that was a king who ruled in a in a deeper, more profound kind of uh, way of being a king or a ruler than anyone else. So wheel, you know, wheels were a big invention. I mean, they were major thing back then. So if you were a wheel turning king, you were like the best of the of kings. And the, when the Buddha decided to uh, become enlightened and to find his path. He then became a wheel-turning monarch as well, but he was turning that the wheel of the Dhamma teach teachings, like bringing the teachings back into the world that had been lost. And so he was another kind of wheel-turning monarch. So the wheel has a real powerful imagery in, in Buddhism. So you see, isn't the wheel is on the Buddhist flag, isn't it? It's part of that. Of that, it isn't. It's not in the flag. Um, it's it's a very important image. So when we're talking about it, when I talk about it with the eightfold path, I'm just using that same wheel as a way to to talk about it. And you can look at the eightfold path. Lots of different ways. So one is to take it, you know, start with one and see how this one leads to the others. And they, and they, they all 
one, it goes from one to the other. One helps develop the other, and then the next, and the next. But another way is to see how they all interact with each other all the time, and they don't necessarily follow consecutively, but there's that interaction comes more uh, with a situation. You may see one one piece interacting with another that that's not in that sequential order. And all the parts of the Eightfold Path, we're all somewhere with all of them. So what is the Eightfold Path? Does everybody know all eight of the parts of it? (laughs) Okay, that's your homework. So if you take a wheel, you can play with your wheel, and you can take notes on it any way you like. And you can see all the different kind of wheels. the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. We, almost all Buddhists, regardless of uh, what tradition they come from, see that the, the Buddha's essential teachings and the most, like the basis of all the rest of his teachings are the Four Noble Truths. And then what follows from the Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path, which is the way to then live. The Eightfold Path is a, uh, a guide for a way to live, to be a good person and to be a successful person a, a, as a human being. I was listening to some uh, a debate between Stephen Batchelor and another uh, Ajahn Brahmali, uh, and they, they were, you know, Stephen Batchelor is the, they call him the an atheist Buddhist, which he says you can't have that term. It's, it's, you know, it's a contradiction. But, uh, and then Ajahn Brahmali is very traditional, so they had a really kind of interesting discussion. And I can't remember what the point was. Oh, uh, Ajahn, uh, uh, Stephen Batchelor made the, made the point at one, at one part of the debate that the Eightfold Path is really for any, to be a good human being, that, and that's, you know, the Buddha wanted people to know how to be good human beings. And that that was the best thing you could do to help the world, is to live a life that was, uh, that in, that was developing the best characteristics in yourself and the best behavior and the best way to be with other living beings. And that that, Eightfold path just describes that. So we're, so we're all somewhere on that path if we've ever had the thought that we wanted to be a good human being. So I like, I kind of like that, that it's not, it's not something out of the ordinary, but we can all see where we are in all of those categories. And it gives us kind of an indication of where we are on this path to be a human being that's uh, is doing the best for the whole, for all other living beings. So, and when, uh, when we think about things like facing climate change, that's an important thing to think about, is what kind of human being are we being for the planet right now? And that becomes more and more, you know, we're, we're get, that becomes more and more important all the time. So the eight, the four noble truths. We start out with the the first the first thing we have to do is make excuses for the four noble truths because we'll say the Buddha said you know there there is suffering in the world 
And the word dukkha is the word. And so we always say that's probably a bad translation of the word dukkha, is to say suffering. But we always say it anyway. <laughs> you know, it's an, so we start out by apologizing. So the 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 Buddha uh, uh, the Buddha said that this you know life has life is all this stuff the stuff that the good stuff and the bad stuff and even if it's good it can it becomes bad if it's bad it might become good but life is full of uh, dissatisfaction unsatisfactoriness. Uh, stress. And the other thing that uh, Stephen Batchelor said, he said he described, instead of saying dukkha means suffering, he said you can think of it as it's a, a kind of poignancy. It's like those things that really are, uh, we, we can see sometimes just an instant of it, or we have just a taste of it, of something that's really beautiful, but we know it's ephemeral. We know it's not going to last. So that poignancy of that kind of, that beautiful moment, but there's a sadness to it also, because it's not, it's, we know it can't last. And so that's a, I think that's a beautiful way too to describe dukkha. It's not just, oh, the pain and suffering that we have. It's the fact that we can't ever stay at that point where something is like incredibly perfect. We, we know even that is gonna, just, just for that instant, we know that's gonna change. It can't stay exactly at that moment where we see all the facets of it and something's very beautiful. You know, it's, it, then in a little bit it's gone. Like if you, if you could see a perfect snowflake, it, it, well, they're, I guess they're all different, so they're all perfect. But it would, it wouldn't last very long, you know. Just if you, if it was on your fingertip, it would melt right away. And I think when I was listening to him talk about that, I thought that the Japanese are really good at that, and traditionally they are really good at that. Uh, even the cherry blossom festivals, people go and sit under the cherry trees and drink uh, sake, and they. They're just they're 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 there really for the poignancy of watching these beautiful trees with the beautiful blossoms, and then the blossoms fall to the ground. And the beauty for them is just watching that impermanence. And so they also have a lot of, uh, you know, I think the Japanese can have the most dramatic kind of melodramatic some of their forms of entertainment because they, they kind of get really wrapped up in that poignancy. But it's, but it's, and, and a lot of their design and art is all, uh, is all caught up in that things that are beautiful, but that beauty doesn't last. But that's part of the beauty. That's part of the, that's part of what they're, they really want to capture in, in themselves. So, Dukkha, that dukkha includes that kind of quality. So it's, it's, it's what our human lives are made up of. So the Buddha said there is that, this life, this life has this, has dukkha. And, uh, 
that the, that's the truth of this world. That's the truth that we need to really understand and uh, embrace it. And uh, Bhante Bhadiya talked about full comprehension when he was talking. He was talking about death, and it was a, I think that was Monday, wasn't it? It was a beautiful talk. But he started out talking about how we have to fully comprehend the first noble truth. And that is, there is dukkha. So even the loss of a person can be that poignancy. Like you can, uh, someone you love or someone who is a dear friend or someone you just knew, and then you find out that they've died, that has that same, there's the same beauty to it, but also can be, there can be all the grief and the feeling of loss. But at some point, we can feel there was this life, there was this person, and I and I got to know this person. I had this person in my life, and then, then they were gone. And we can see, hopefully then, there's a point where we can really see the beauty in that, you know, that we actually had that opportunity to be with that person or know that person or experience something about that person. So that's that um, that quality too, and that's that that's that's part of what we have to embrace. When we embrace dukkha, we have to start thinking about exactly what does that mean? Do we just get totally filled up with the fact that there's a lot of horrible stuff in this world and there's a lot of suffering? But you know that's that's part of our our uh, that's part of what the Buddha wanted us to do was to really understand what that means. And then, then the second truth is to understand that the cause of that is craving. The cause of that, of the dukkha, of the part that, the part that feels painful sometimes is that we, we crave, we crave certain experiences or certain people, or certain foods, we don't want to let go. They're so, they're so good, or they're so bad that we that we develop uh, an addiction to them, a craving for them. And so, when when we lose those things that are good, and when we lose the things that are bad, sometimes we we don't we don't want to let go, and that that's where that. Uh, that sense of dissatisfaction comes from. We can't hang on to anything because the nature of all things is that everything is impermanent. So the very nature of this world is that all conditional things are impermanent. They, they rise up, they're born, they rise up for a while, and they're, you know, there's a little stretch of uh, being, being existing, and then they sink back again. So that's just the way reality is. So, so that that beauty of seeing the poignancy in something uh, is is a good way to look at how we can think of even uh, suffering. You know, if we want to think of suffering instead of dissatisfaction or poignancy, we can if we can see it as here is this thing that arose for a short period of time. And I got to see it. I got to witness it. I got to be part of it. And then, but then we know the nature of it is to uh, go away again, just like the nature of our own selves is.
So that's the, that's the second thing that we need to embrace, to comprehend, to understand. And craving is just that hanging on to things. I always think of it as just a real tight grip. And then the third noble truth is that there's a way out of that suffering. And so he didn't, the Buddha didn't just say, okay, there's dukkha. So he could have just walked off at that point, <laughs> drop the mic and go off. <laughs> and then where would we be? Uh, but he said there's a path out of it. There's a, there's a way out of this, uh, living with this unsettled, uh, angst or, uh, unhappiness that we, that we seem to have because nothing is ever, if something's perfect, it doesn't last. So nothing is ever exactly what we want it to be. So he said the way out of it is to then embark on this path. And I like thinking about the eightfold path being something we embark on. We can choose, okay, I can, I can really understand about dukkha and I can really see it in my life and I can see when I've then I can see when I've held on to things and it was my holding on that caused me to keep suffering, that made it into pain and suffering. Um, we really have to work with it to even understand it and, and to get beyond just the surface, you know, memorizing it. There is dukkha. There is a cause for dukkha. There is you know, a, solu- a remedy uh, uh, for dukkha. And then there's this path. Uh, we have to sit with it, kind of wallow in it, I think, a little bit to really fully comprehend it and the ramifications for our entire, entire life and the world. So the Eightfold Path then, when we're ready for that, we can say, okay, I'm ready to take this journey. I'm gonna, I want to see if this works. If this really, if I, if I undertake this path that's being outlined for me, I want to see if it's going to work. And that's the only thing the Buddha want, wanted us to do was to see for ourselves, uh, what works. And he never said, you have to do this and just assume I'm, I'm going to tell you about it. So if you believe in it, that's, then you're, then you're saved, you know? It doesn't work that way. I'm going to tell you about this path, but then what you have to do, by the way, is to go on it. You have to take the journey yourself. So I want to talk about just the first two things on the path. And, and again, remember that this we can number them one through eight. And then when I was looking up lots of different things, I see some people even number it differently than everybody else. And their way made a lot of sense to me, but I'm going to go with the way we always see it. So we think that number one, we have, we have the eightfold path is broken into three categories. The first category is called wisdom. The second category is called uh, sila, or that's our ethical, that's our moral behavior. That's how we, that's how we act and how we speak and how we, uh, how we live in the world. And then the third one is, uh, mind, well, mindfulness, and it also includes the uh, concentration. So it includes our practice of meditation and the quality of mindfulness. Uh, 
So, if, you, if we start with the first, we th- the very first one is right view, a right understanding. And m- m- the most common uh, way people describe that is that's the, the Buddha's teaching, and we we use the word right, and I it's that's not really the best word to use. I think it we can say uh, appropriate understanding, which kind of lacks the <laughs> the punch, but uh, or ideal could be. Well, let's use let's just use right. But I'm not trying to say right versus wrong. Right is maybe we could think of it as being noble. So there's right understanding. So the, what, what the Buddha was teaching, the base of all his teachings, was the Four Noble Truths, which then includes this path itself. So the, if we really understand the Four Noble Truths, that's the basis for right understanding. And then as we grow in our practice and being on this, this uh, path for a while, even that expands out. It expands out to a even a deeper understanding of uh, of the nature of reality and the world. And but it but we all come always come back to the four noble truths. So that's right understanding. And then the second part is either called right thought or often called right intention. And I. I used to like right intention, but lately I'm thinking, oh, I like right thought. Because it's, uh, right thought is, and, and right intention, you know, we set intentions, but that's, that's like setting our thoughts. Like, what are my thoughts gonna be? Am I gonna be kind of, uh, are they gonna be really coarse thoughts? Or am I gonna, do I wanna have some, like, uh, higher level, elevated thinking, to uplift my life, to, uh, to, to, to lift me up out of like where everybody else might be at the moment and be a little bit above the crowd in terms of the way I think. Am I going to choose to think wholesome thoughts, skillful thoughts, or, I'm, or am I going to be kind of groveling in the dirt? So, but it's, but it's our choice. So when we think about right thoughts or right intention, what the Buddha was talking about was we're having thoughts always of of being kind and not harming others or ourselves. So whenever we think about loving kindness or metta, it's that quality, and that's a quality of being harmless. So not doing, not being harmless to any other living beings and not harming ourselves. So that's very potent. <laughs> if you think about it, that's that, and when we think about things like dealing with climate change, being harmless even means how are we going to help be someone who helps the climate and helps people deal with the change that's coming? Or are we going to be doing, are we going to be continual, continual to, continue to or start being more careless and harmful towards the planet because we feel hopeless about it? So if we have an attitude of metta or an attitude of harmlessness, we won't make that choice. We won't, we won't be hopeless because then we would start creating 
more harm than we would any good. And also it's a, it's having thoughts of renunciation, which is just letting go. And that can be, that's that letting go of letting go of things that we don't need, letting go of those things that we're craving and hanging on to. And, uh, when we're talking about dealing with climate change, it might be letting go of things that we know are harmful to the planet, but maybe there are creature comforts where they're the things that we really like, but we know it's probably, you know, if we love styrofoam, which somebody at here at the temple used to do, used to love a lot. Because I, I was I was upset that we had styrofoam cups by the water still. And uh, the monks said, well, we're, we're getting rid of the last of it. There was just a huge supply in the basement. So instead of just throw those out, they figured let's get some use out of them before we throw them out. And I said, you know, those we've, we've had this for the last, how, how long have we been in this temple? Ten years? And we, I've, been, I've been saying since I first started coming to Blue Lotus, we have to get rid of all this styrofoam. That was like in 2007, I mean, when we ended up, when we started being upstairs, when we had the kitchen. Somebody kept buying, and I thought we were going to use up that big box and be done with it. And that was like 12, 13 years ago. (laughs) And this is not dusty old styrofoam. (laughs) But they said, no, no, there is a huge supply, so we're almost done with it. So if you love styrofoam, but you're aware of how it's harming the planet, uh, are you willing to give it up? Or, you know, is it something you can let go of? Is it, is, is, are there some, pro, are there some simple things you can do? Or maybe really like to keep your house really nice and warm even when you're gone for days and days or for your, you just like the idea. Well, you know, in the, because it feels luxurious to you and you can afford it. So are you willing to let go of that? Is that really necessary to, to uh, just little things even? And sometimes it's big things. Like it seems like there are some people who don't want to give up their private jets and uh, not to make fun of the royalty in, in England, but there can be, there's been a lot of talk about a certain couple flying, talking a lot about saving the environment and then flying on private jets to go to different places. And that becomes, that becomes kind of a, uh, a silly example, but it's that kind of thing. It's a little, maybe some of those luxuries might be, it might be good to renunciate some of those things. And we all have our little things that we know of that it's hard to give up the packaging. Uh, it's hard to give up you know, all the plastic bags we accumulate, even that stuff, uh, it piles up even if we think we're trying to recycle. So though that's so our intentions need to be uh, of kindness and harmlessness, and then that renunciation, that letting go of things we don't we don't need, things that don't serve us well. And so those that's wisdom. So that's only two things you 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 want to remember. You can, we'll do the other six maybe next week. Um, because this is how you start the journey. This is, this is what you first need to do. And it's not like, uh, 
It's more about really deeply, really allow yourself, maybe when you're meditating and you have a little bit of extra time, just let the, let the truth of, of dukkha, just really take that in and see, see where you feel that in your life or where you felt that or, uh, where you've, where you've had those experiences where it was really hard to let go of your suffering. I mean, sometimes we are suffering. We just suffer. I mean, we might be in a great deal of pain or we're going through a loss that's really fresh. But sometimes we, you know, we hang on to that when it, when we, it's time for us to let it go. And it become, it maybe becomes a way we identify uh, how much we love someone or how much we cared about something or how important something was to us. And sometimes we don't want to let go of certain things because it might change our status or change where we feel we fit in with our families or our uh, community. So uh, think about that. Think about that. How that how that is in your life, or how you even see it in the broader picture, because it's that deep understanding that we want to have first. Then everything else can flow pretty freely. So, with that, we'll stop with wisdom. Now you have wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>